The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Good morning, church. How are we? Great. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm really thankful that you would take some time out of your weekend to be with us. Uh, we are studying the book of Acts, and so if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up to Acts chapter 26. Uh, if you are new around here and you want to be known, uh, there's a blue and gray connect card in your seat back, and uh, you can fill it out at any point, any point during the gathering. Let us know that you're here. Uh, the back side of that card is for prayer requests, and we love to pray for uh, the people of this congregation. So if there is something on your heart that you need prayer for, uh, please take a moment and fill that card out, and you can just drop them in the black boxes in the back there uh, on your way out of the room, but we would love to lift you up uh, before the Lord. Uh, one quick announcement. Um, Easter's coming. I don't know if you knew that. I'm announcing that Easter's coming. Uh, uh, April 17th is Easter Sunday. I know that for many in the, in the school system, uh, that is the tail end of spring break. Uh, you get spring break right before Easter this year. Um, but I would just implore you as our church family to do everything that you can to be here gathered with us for Easter. Uh, it's been uh, really two years since we've had the entire church uh, gathered with us for Easter Sunday. And so I'd uh, love to just make that a priority if at all possible so that we can be gathered together as the people of God uh, to celebrate Resurrection Sunday together. Uh, so come home early from spring break if you can and uh, join us for uh, Easter Sunday. Two services like normal. We will have kids ministry up to, I think, three years old at both gatherings for the first time uh, in a while. So excited about that. Uh, we're nearing the end of this study in the book of Acts. Uh, we've got just two weeks left after today. So what do you say we start over again when we're done? Anybody? No? <laughs> Um, it's been really good, I think. It's been, it's been helpful. Like, I have so loved studying the Word of God, uh, gotten a lot out of this book, and uh, I, pr- I hope that it has been beneficial to you as we've walked through it together. If you've missed any of it, it's all online on the website, on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, you, can all, you can catch up on what's now, what, 36, 37 messages in the book of Acts. Lately, we've been following the Apostle Paul, He has completed his third and final missionary journey. He went to Jerusalem because he felt compelled by the Spirit to go there, uh, not knowing what awaited him, but only that pain would be in his future. And so he gets there, he's he's beaten, he's arrested, uh, and we have seen him lately kind of stuck, right? He's been in Roman captivity for over two years now with no charges officially, uh, with no conviction, with no movement, Uh, No evidence, really, of any wrongdoing that he's done, but he's been stuck there uh, in Roman um, occupation, Roman uh, custody, if you will. And this seemingly endless cycle of trials has happened before Jews, before Roman officials. Last week we saw him before, now the second governor, Festus. Uh, And before he makes his way to Rome, he's waiting on transport, essentially. Uh, When he was before Festus last week, he, appealed, he, he saw that that trial was going nowhere as well, so he appealed to Caesar, meaning I want to go to Rome and, and be tried at the highest court. Uh, and so he's awaiting now transport to Rome, unsure of what's ahead of him. But there's one more hearing, one more trial that he'll endure here uh, in Caesarea, and this is going to be before King Agrippa. 
as, as I was studying this, the question came to my mind. Last week, we looked at Paul's faithfulness, like what helped Paul be faithful to Jesus uh, in the midst of all, this, all these trials and all this pain that he's going through. But there's a flip side to that question, and that is, what did, what did Christ give to Paul? What does the gospel provide to us? How did, did Paul's faith in Jesus empower him to endure? In other words, what does the Lord provide to us, to all of us, that will help us as well as we face uh, circumstances, as, as we face things that we need to endure? And so uh, that's the question I hope you kind of keep in your mind as we look at the passage. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll pick up in chapter 25, verse 23, and then I'll go from there. We'll, we'll cover most of chapter 26 today, okay? So let's pray, and then uh, we'll jump into the word. Father, I, uh, I know there are many people in this room uh, who are facing very, very hard things. There are many in this room who have had incredibly trying and difficult weeks. There's a lot of pain, a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty um, in the hearts and minds of the people that are here this morning and uh, even those who will listen to this later. And so, um, God, I, I pray that you would meet us here in our weakness, in our confusion, in our suffering. For those that are not enduring such things during this season, um, that we would be of help to those who are. And, Lord, as we look at this text, um, that you would show us marvelous things within it. Holy Spirit, I plead with you to empower me to rightly divide this word so that um, we see the beauty and glory of Jesus and all that he provides for us, not only in our salvation, but ongoing, ongoing, present help in times of trouble. So help us, Lord, to be focused, our hearts and minds, on this text, on what you have to say to us, and Holy Spirit, do what only you can do uh, in the hearts of your people uh, through your word. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. All right, let's pick it up. Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 23. So if you remember the context, Paul is before Festus, the governor of, of Judea, and uh, the king, Agrippa, has come to town, and he wants to hear Paul on this matter. And so uh, Festus said to Agrippa, you'll hear him tomorrow. And this is where we pick up. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, that's his sister, came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write, my lord, about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. 
especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from youth, from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? All right, we'll stop there. If you're a note taker, you can write this down. What is it that the Lord provides to Paul, provides to us? Uh, The first thing that we see here is a stabilizing confidence. A stabilizing confidence. I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, let Let me back up for a minute first. When we read the Bible, especially the New Testament, we come across all kinds of people who are named King Herod. And so it can be a little confusing, so I just want to take a minute and clarify that. Uh, we have, first of all, King Herod the Great, who, was, uh, who ruled during the time that Jesus was born. And so he's the one, if you remember the gospel stories, where uh, he wanted to, he murdered all the, the male babies two years and younger uh, in all Judea, and, and Jesus' family escaped to Egypt. Okay, that's King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great had three sons. So we went from the Herodian dynasty to the Tetrarchy. There were three sons, three leaders. One of them was named Herod Antipas, okay? Herod Antipas is the one who uh, had John the Baptist beheaded. You might remember that from the gospel accounts, okay? John the Baptist called him out on this relationship that he had, and he didn't like that, and and, uh, his wife basically wanted John the Baptist's head on the platter, and so he did that for her. He had a son, Antipas had a son, who went by the title Agrippa I, okay? Now, Agrippa I, you may remember from our study in the book of Acts, he's the one who had James, the brother of John, murdered. He's the one who had Peter imprisoned. And then the Holy Spirit ninja, like angel, got him out. Remember that, Acts chapter 12? And then he's the one who came into Caesarea with great pomp and circumstance and, the, and he had this shining, glittering robe and the people cried out, oh, he has the voice of a God and he kind of Yes, I do. And God struck him dead. Okay? That's Agrippa I. Now, Agrippa I had a son who went by Agrippa II. Okay? That's who we're talking about right here. Now, by the time that this takes place, which is roughly the 60s AD, uh, the Herodian dynasty was at its end. Agrippa II is the last. And really, he was a client king, meaning that he didn't really have power and authority so much as it was a PR campaign. He was dependent on Rome. And so he... He showed up with flash and with pomp and circumstance, but he really um, advocated for the interests of the Roman Empire. He was dependent on Rome for everything, for their law, for their wealth, for their power, Uh, but he kind of showed up and he was called the king, okay? So he comes to town and he wants to hear Paul on this matter. And Festus, who has no charges to give against Paul, wants the help of the king to figure out what do we charge him with to send him to Rome? Because he's going to Rome, he's going to stand before Caesar, and I don't want him to get there and we go, eh, I don't know, he just wanted to talk to you, all right? We need a charge. So that's why he's there. So the king comes in, they bring him into this assembly with great pomp and circumstance, right? Imagine like Lord Farquaad coming in, you remember that? Some of you remember, some of you are like, I don't know. Shrek, come on, you remember Shrek? The king in Shrek? Uh, he comes in and there's all the trumpets and blah, 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 you know, like they, that's it, okay? So he comes in, this big, big assembly. It's a show. 
Now, really, this trial means nothing other than Festus is going to get a little help with figuring out what to charge Paul with. But anyway, he comes before him, and Paul says, King, now by the way, it is thought that King Agrippa II was a pious Jew. So Paul's going to address him as a Jew. He says, King, you are well acquainted with the Jewish faith and with the practice of the Jews and with the divisions that we've had among the Jews, right? You know about the Pharisee and the Sadducee controversies and all that kind of stuff. You know also that I was born and raised as a Pharisee. Now, the king would have known exactly what that meant, that the Pharisees had the highest view of God, of God's word, of God's promises. And then Paul says, the whole reason that I am on trial, king, is because of my hope. My hope in God's promise to previous generations. In fact, he uses the word hope. Did you notice that? Three times in this text, he uses the word hope. Two different meanings, but three times he uses the word. He says, I'm on trial because of my hope. So we got to push pause right here and ask two questions. One, what does Paul mean by hope? And second, what is Paul's hope? If he's saying, I'm on trial because of the hope that I have, what does he mean by that? And what is his hope? Where is his hope? Okay, Here's the problem with the word hope. Um, The way we use it in English, in America in particular, is not the way the Bible generally uses the word hope. When we say, when we use the word hope, what do we generally mean? Like, okay, if we said, um, are the Tar Heels going to win the national championship? And I say, I hope so. What do I mean? Probably not. (laughs) Right? I got my blue on. I want them to win. Okay? Like, I desire it but I don't know, and it's unlikely, but it's really what I want. And if they don't, maybe St. Peter's can pull it out. You know, that'd be awesome. I know three of you watch basketball, but it's pretty intense right now, okay? So when you say, I hope for something, we're generally saying, this is what I desire, but I really don't know if it's going to happen or not, and it's probably unlikely that it will. That's, that's American hope, right? That's Western hope. Now, that's what Paul means in verse 7. Look at verse 7, where he says, Uh, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. So the 12 tribes, uh, the the people of God in the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish people, they are striving to attain something. They hope, they desire to attain it, but they are uncertain as to whether or not they will. That's, That's that mention of the word hope. But Paul uses the word hope very differently. For Paul, hope is a stabilizing confidence. It's a surety. It's a certainty. Uh, um, I believe it was Tim Keller, the pastor from New York City, uh, who, who put it this way. He said, biblical hope, if you read the whole Bible, the way the word hope is generally used in the Bible is that biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty about the future. Now contrast that to the way that I just used hope for the Tar Heels. <laughs> okay? A life-shaping certainty about the future. So for Paul, I can call it a stabilizing confidence. He's sure. He is confident in it. Okay, so then the second question becomes, well, what is Paul's hope? If that's what he means by hope, what is his hope? Is it not Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection according to promise? Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is uh, writing to the Corinthian church and he says, let me remind you of what is of first importance. That Jesus lived, 
according to the scriptures, that he died according to the scriptures, that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, that he appeared to more than 500, and then he appeared to me, the least of all. Okay? What's he saying? That Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection were all promised, predicted in the scriptures. And as a Jew who held the highest regard for the scriptures, he's basically saying, God is doing what he promised to do. Okay? And because Jesus came as the promised Messiah, because he lived the life we couldn't, died the death we deserved, and rose again from the grave, we can have confidence. We can have certainty. That's why he says here, why is it shocking to anybody that God can raise the dead? If God is God, why can't he raise the dead? He said he would, and he did it. Okay, let me give you one other uh, passage here. Um, you don't have to turn here. I just want to read you this one verse from the book of Romans. Now, Paul has already written this letter to the Roman church. He's going to go visit the Romans uh, in just a little while here. But this, listen to what he says here to the, the church at Rome. For, this is verse 4 of chapter 15, if you just want to make a note of it. For whatever was written in former days, meaning whatever was written down, the Old Testament scripture, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have surety, confidence that what God says is going to happen is going to come to pass. He has proven it in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we are waiting for the promises yet to come. That's why we can sing that hymn, um, On Christ the solid rock we stand. You know, the, the line goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is built on. That's not a, all right, let's roll the dice and see what happens right? That is, I am staking my life on this, that Jesus' blood and righteousness is enough for me, right? That he lived a life I could not live, died in my place, and that his blood spilled on the cross is enough to cleanse me of all sin and unrighteousness, and I stake my life on that. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Where is your hope today? Where's your hope? Because all of us hope in something, Some of us just hope in better circumstances. Some of us put our hope in the fact that we're a good person. And maybe one day, you know, we'll get to stand before God and all the good we've done will kind of outweigh all the bad we've done and he'll be like, all right, come on in, you know. Where's your hope? What confidence is shaping the trajectory of your life? Because if it's not in Christ... It's a false hope, and it will disappoint you. So Paul here is given a stabilizing confidence by the Lord, but that's not all. Um, let, let me summarize a few verses, and then we'll get into the next section. You guys with me so far? Okay. So um, in verses 9 to 18, Paul is going to tell his story of how he came to salvation again. Now, I'm going to skip that section and summarize it, only because we've seen it in Acts chapter 9 in real time, right? Paul being saved. Uh, And then in Acts chapter 22, Paul tells that story. 
And Pastor Mark was up here and, and walked us through the power of our personal testimony, uh, and he reiterated uh, Paul's conversion story again. So I don't want to spend a lot of time reiterating it a third time. You can read it on your own time if you're interested, but I want to I summarize it and, and, and point out a couple of interesting things that happened in verses 9 to 18. First of all, Paul says, look, I was opposed to Jesus once too. In fact, I was in a raging fury against him. I hated Jesus. I hate everything that he stood for. I was persecuting the church. He says, I cast my vote against him which is an indication that he was probably part of that Jewish ruling uh, uh, group called the Sanhedrin, right? And that when they put people up to death, he cast his vote against them that they might be murdered, okay? But then he says, so I was in a raging fury against Jesus until I met Jesus. And the same Jesus I was so violently opposed to graciously accepted me. And he gave me a mission to proclaim the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to the entire world. Now, remember, he's speaking to the king. He says, so that, essentially, he says, so that people like you, king, could have your eyes opened like mine were opened. So that you could turn from the power of death to the power of life, from darkness to light, so that you could, could turn away from the clutches of the evil one and be embraced by the righteous one so that you could receive forgiveness of your sins. So that's, that's how he sort of summarizes his story in verses 9 to 18. Now, if you'll pick up with me in verse 19. Therefore, O king, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, how can I disobey direct orders from the risen Christ? But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Okay, we'll stop there. So the second thing that the Lord provides for Paul and is on offer to us as well is what I'm calling a sustaining comfort. He says, I have, I have received the help that comes from God. Okay, it's a sustaining comfort. As he's speaking to the king, he says, look, I was given a mission and I, I'm, I have done what God has called me to do. I went throughout the whole world proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And all I'm doing, King, all I'm doing is reiterating what God said through the Old Testament prophets would come to pass. That Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one would come. That he would suffer in our place, taking all of our sin and guilt and shame on himself. That he would be executed in our place for our sins. That he would rise again from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell. So that any who would trust in the finished work of Jesus with empty hands could be saved, forgiven, made new, welcomed into the family of God. He says, that's all I'm doing. His message, the message of Jesus is life and light for all, both to Jew and to Gentile. That's a big statement. But we've seen, if you remember back to Paul's, um, in Acts 15, when Paul came back to Jerusalem for the first time, and they brought his gospel up to sort of evaluate it, and because he had been preaching to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, 
okay? And they said, well, let's examine your gospel. And he says, here it is. And they're reminded of this passage from the book of Amos, an Old Testament prophet who said that this good news of the Messiah would go to both Jew and to Gentile. And so all the Jewish council in in Acts 15 is like, you know what? No, this is right. This is true. Stamp of approval on Paul's gospel. It's It's just what the prophet said would happen. This isn't just one message for one people. It's for everybody, the entire world. And so Paul says, listen, I've suffered a lot. I mean, I've been around the world proclaiming this message. And let me tell you, it hasn't gone over super great. There's a lot of people who weren't happy about it. But through every toil and danger and snare, he says, I have had the help that comes from God. In other words, Paul has experienced a sustaining comfort that only the Lord could provide. Okay, let's think together about what that might have looked like. What are some ways in which God has helped him? What are some ways in which God has brought comfort to Paul throughout his journeys? Let's think back on this. The word of God. Paul already has said to us, he's convinced of the promises of God. And he has seen them be fulfilled in the person work of Jesus. And so that gives him confidence in the promises to come. The word of God is a huge encouragement to Paul. Those Old Testament promises he clings to, knowing that Jesus has fulfilled and is fulfilling all that was promised, okay? The word of God is a comfort to him. It's a help. What else? Spirit of God. How many times has the Holy Spirit shown up for Paul, given him dreams, visions, words, right? Warnings. For example, he knows that he's in God's hands headed to Rome because the Spirit spoke to him and said, you have been my witness in Jerusalem, you will be my witness in Rome. So no matter what comes his way, he knows he's in safe hands. He will make it to Rome. Now, who knows what's going to happen to him when he gets there, but Jesus is going to make sure he gets there. Spirit of God is a help and a comfort to him. How about the people of God? Have the people of God been a help and a comfort to Paul? Yeah. Other people who've been transformed by Jesus have come alongside Paul. They have encouraged him. They have prayed for him. They have supported him. When he gets to Rome, and he'll be there for a couple years, he's going to write a bunch of letters to other churches, letters like Colossians and Philippians. And in letters like that, he will mention specific people and specific churches who came alongside him, who supported him, helped him, prayed for him, encouraged him, even gave of themselves for him financially and otherwise. The people of God who've been changed by Jesus have come alongside and been a help and an encouragement to him. They've ministered to him. One more. How about the providence of God? We looked at that a couple weeks ago. As Paul looks back on his life, he's able to see a divine, sovereign thread woven through all of his circumstances, all of his situations, that point him to the fact that his life is in the hand of God. Okay, question. Pop quiz, believer. Do you have the word of God available to you? Christian? Do you have the spirit of God available to you? Do you have the people of God available to you? Can you look back on the providence of God in your own life? Okay, that wasn't very loud. (laughs) Okay, What I'm trying to reiterate to you is that the the way that God helped Paul is the same way that he helps us. 
we too have the word of God available to us to remind us of the promises of God, the goodness of God, the character of God, the love of God to help us endure anything. We too have the spirit of God to speak to us, to encourage us, to comfort us. The spirit's called our comforter. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of you, believer. We too have the people of God this community who are people transformed by Jesus to come alongside of us, to minister to us, to encourage us, to lift us up when we don't have strength in ourselves. We too can look back on our lives and see the divine, sovereign, providential hand of God woven through all of our experiences to bring us to the point we're at right now. Everything that was available to Paul is available to you. How have you experienced the help that comes from God? How has God shown up for you through his word, his spirit, his people, his providence to minister to you, to encourage you, to comfort you, to help you endure? I got one more thing. Look with me at verse 26. Sorry, verse 24. I love this part. As he was saying these things, so Paul is defending himself to the king, okay? As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, that's the governor, said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. (laughs) Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking, listen, true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. All right, so my last thing I want you to see here, what God provides, what the Lord gives to Paul and is available to us, okay? Not only uh, a stabilizing confidence, not only a sustaining comfort, but a startling courage. You like that alliteration? (laughs) A startling courage. The king and his sister, Bernice, are listening intently to Paul as he makes his defense, and then Festus, who's already heard all this stuff. I mean, Paul made this basic exact defense to Festus last week in our text. Festus pipes up, and and the translation for this, I mean, you could almost translate it as, Paul, you're nuts! This is crazy! You're crazy! And Paul looks right back at him, he says, no, no, I'm in my right mind, and I'm speaking words that are both true and rational And I love that he says that, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that there's not mystery to the gospel. That doesn't mean there's not mystery to the Christian faith, but mystery and irrationality are not the same thing. 
the, the Christian gospel message makes sense. It has a logical flow. It follows a train of thought. Like, it makes sense. You don't have to check your mind at the door to cross through the threshold of faith. Now, does that mean you're going to get every question that you have answered? No. Does that mean there's not going to be any mystery to the Christian faith? No. But it also, the scripture also reminds us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so though, it, though there's a logic to it, though there's a, 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 a rationality to the gospel message that, that, you know, we were born, we were created to worship God, to have relationship with him, and by our rebellion, we lose that relationship because God is holy. He must judge our sin and our rebellion. And yet he sent Jesus to live a life we couldn't, tempted in every way that we are, but without sin, to stand in for us, that Jesus went to the cross to absorb the wrath of God that is rightly for us. Like we should be judged for our sin against a holy God. And yet Jesus takes all that wrath, absorbs it, turns it into favor. He dies, he rises from the grave, proving that his death was sufficient. And so when we come to him with empty hands and we receive his finished work, we can be forgiven of sin. We can move from dark to light, from death to life. We can be welcomed into the family of God and made a child of God and no longer his enemy. Like all that flows together, but it's spiritually discerned. And so I don't know how many of you, like most of the people who come to faith in this church grew up in church. And here's what they would say to me. You know, I grew up in church my whole life and I never heard the gospel. And I really hope that's not true. Like what I really hope happened was that they just didn't have ears to hear. Now, maybe there's some churches out there that don't know the gospel and don't proclaim it, but I'd like to think that they did proclaim it. You just didn't have ears to hear. But at a point in time, the Holy Spirit awakened your heart gave you ears to hear and eyes to see, and all of a sudden you started to realize, oh, this makes sense. I can't tell you how many people who've come to faith in this church said one day it just clicked. It made sense. The penny dropped, right? I, I, I got it. So, so Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians, like the gospel message, though it is rational and logical and though it makes sense, it seems like foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved... It's the power of God. It's light and life. But see, because Paul has this hope, this stabilizing confidence in the reality of the resurrected Christ, because Paul has experienced the sustaining comfort and the help of the Lord, he can now demonstrate this startling courage. Before kings and governors, he says, I speak boldly. And so then he readdresses the king. He's like, Festus, shut up. Let me talk to the king here, right? I'm talking to the king. And so he, he focuses in again on the king, and he says, king, you know all about this movement. You, this wasn't done in a corner. In other words, we didn't do this in secret. You'd be a pretty bad king if thousands and thousands and thousands of people became Christians right under your nose, and you were like, what is this? What? Huh? Right? You're not oblivious. This isn't some little fringe group. This is a global awakening. People's lives are being changed by the thousands all over the world, and you know it. And then I love the courage of Paul where he basically, I mean, I, you ever read the Bible and you kind of put yourself in the scene and you're like, what would it be like to be in the room? 
You ever do that? Anybody? Just me? I'll be the heretic. Okay. So when I read the Bible, sometimes I'm like, what would it be like? Imagine that you're like, there's the king and there's Bernice because she's always with him. And, um, and, and I'm like over here and I'm watching Paul and I, and I see Paul make eye contact with the king. And it's like everybody else in the room disappears and they're the only two left in the room. And he says to the king, do you believe the scriptures? I know that you do. What courage. <laughs> now again, the king, maybe a pious Jew, so he would have had to have believed the Old Testament scriptures. But I also think, and we've seen this multiple times throughout the book of Acts, I believe that Paul, this is me, my speculation, I think Paul had a unique spiritual discernment to understand the heart of the people he spoke to and whether they were open to receiving the truth of the gospel. You see him press on certain people. You see him back away from certain people that he could see. He had a discernment to know their spiritual condition. And, and so maybe he discerned an openness to the king. And so he says, do you believe the scriptures? I know that you do. And, fe- and, and, and King Agrippa, maybe feeling a little convicted, tries to kind of redirect, right? Like the, the woman at the well when Jesus is talking to her and he kind of reads her mail and she's like, well, what do you think about this? Like she just changes the direction. We're, we're good at that. He goes, you're going to get me to surrender to Jesus so quickly? You're going to get me to become a Christian? Like kind of trying to crack a joke about it. And Paul's like, yeah, that's my plan. I don't care how long it takes, but my goal and aim is that as many people as possible within the sound of my voice would surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ. That's my aim. And listen, to you in this room, to you listening to this at another time, I want to tell you as the pastor of this church, my aim and goal is that as many people as possible who are within the sound of my voice, week after week, would hear the gospel message and surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ. It is the best decision you will ever make. You will never regret it. That you would be so sick of yourself and your sin and your foolishness that you would finally surrender and say, Jesus, take it all. Because I don't want to do this anymore without you. Imagine the courage of Paul to stand there and stare down the king of Judah and say that to him, Judea, and say that to him. Where on earth does Paul get that kind of courage? (laughs) There's a passage that um, I was reminded of in 2 Corinthians that I think is really helpful. You you don't have to turn there. It won't be on the screen. But I want you to hear Paul's words to the Corinthian church here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now remember, if you don't know the story, like Paul... He says as much, like we saw this. He's a murderer of Christians. He hates Christians. He doesn't want anything to do with the people of Jesus until he meets Jesus. And then he goes from persecutor to pastor, (laughs) the greatest proponent of the Christian church and the gospel message the world's ever seen. Like that doesn't just happen, right? Like something changed in him. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. 
died to our old selves. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we run creation, the oldest flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen to this. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. In other words, Paul is like, when I think about what Christ has done for me, when I see who I was, when I see what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection, when I see the gift that is mine in forgiveness, in life, I'm compelled. The love of Christ for me compels me to be bold and to tell everyone this good news that they too can be forgiven, that they too can be reconciled, that they too can, can have this new life in Christ. My life in his hands, his message, his appeal through my lips. Now listen, I need you to know My whole point in this message has been that the very things that, that the Lord gave to Paul to empower him for endurance are available to us as well. Right here, right now. Like when we read the Bible, sometimes we think, yeah, Jesus did that a long time ago. And yeah, he did. But Jesus didn't just do it then. Like that was inauguration for right now, right here. The very things Jesus did, he did for you and me right here, right now. And so this this comfort, this power, this courage is available. This confidence is available to you right here, right now. That's why Jesus went to the cross. One more little verse and then I'm done. The Lord gave this to me this morning as I was praying and thinking through this passage and I was reminded of Hebrews chapter 12. So, you know, Paul is going to go to Rome He's going to be there for a couple years, and he's eventually going to be martyred. He's going to die as a Christian martyr. He's going to give his life. And, and I just imagine him closing his eyes in death and opening them and seeing Jesus face to face and being welcomed in and, and Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You've done it. You testified to me in Jerusalem and in Rome. Welcome home. And he joins that cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross Jesus had this stabilizing confidence, this hope in God, this certainty. Jesus was comforted by the Spirit. Jesus had a courage like no one had ever seen before. And he endured the cross for us 
so that we might endure whatever life throws at us. And he promises us these same very things, a hope, a confidence, a comfort, that the Spirit is called our comforter, who dwells with us, and a courage to speak boldly the name of Jesus to anyone, whether small or great, as Paul says. But we, we do so, he says, by looking to Jesus, by fixing our eyes and our attention on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter, meaning it's Jesus who does the work in us. So don't leave here today thinking I've given you any stuff to do. What I've given you is stuff to receive from the, from the cross, from the finished work of Jesus. Receive this hope, this confidence. Receive this, this comfort this help from God and receive this courage to speak boldly the name of Christ. Okay, uh, let me close with uh, three questions I'm going to put up on the screen really quickly, and then we will move into our time of response. Was that helpful? Does it make sense? All right, all right. I just want to make sure. Um, first question is this. What hope or what confidence is shaping my life the most? As I said earlier, everyone hopes in something. Many of us hope in ourselves, or hope in our abilities. Many of us are uncertain about a lot of things, but there's one thing you can be certain of, and that's Jesus. What hope, what confidence is shaping my life the most? Second question, and again, you can write these down as they come or take a picture of the screen when they're all up, but second one says, how have I experienced the help and comfort that comes from God? through his word, through his spirit, through his people, through, through God's providence as I look back on my life, I might also ask, where do I need the help and the comfort that comes from God? Some of you might not be able to think back on where you have experienced it, but you know you're up against something right now and you need the help and the comfort that comes from God. And I would say to you, let us know. We are the people of God. Let us know how we can pray for you as you endure whatever comes your way that we might be used by God as a help and a comfort in your life. And then third and finally, I think it's the final one, where do I have need of spirit-enabled courage? I doubt any of us will stand before kings or governors or presidents to give testimony to Jesus. However, we all need courage. Specifically, we need courage to speak truth to speak the truth of Jesus. Where do I have need of spirit-enabled courage? Is there a particular relationship that I'm hesitant, I'm nervous? Is there a particular person I'm just... When, when, when opportunities present themselves, I just, I linger. Where do I have need of spirit-enabled courage? Okay, I think that was it. So I'm um, gonna leave these on the screen for us. I'm gonna just give us a minute of stillness and quiet before the Lord so that we can process what we've heard, so we can pray. And then I will open the tables for communion. Now, in this sacred meal, we are remembering Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus shared this meal with his disciples and said that he wouldn't taste it again until the eternal feast. And as we participate regularly in communion, we are, we are having a, a, a bit of a foretaste of that sacred meal to come. There is a hope, there is a confidence that awaits us. There is a surety that we will one day be before the Lord 
And so when we partake of this, it, it is, we're partaking in the promise of what's to come, eternal life with God himself. And so um, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, I would invite you uh, in just a minute to come down these aisles to the tables. Uh, there's two stations at each table. Um, take a wafer, dip into the juice uh, or the wine, whichever your conscience allows, and remember the body of Jesus broken. Remember the blood of Jesus spilled as a down payment of the promise to come. So let me pray, and then I'll invite you to just be still before we go to communion. Father, I thank you for these men and women for the opportunity to uh, open your scripture. Um, and in these final chapters of Acts, which seem just sort, sort of ordinary and plain, there's so much that you want to say to us. And so I thank you for what you have revealed through your scripture this morning, and I pray that something that has been said would stick to our hearts and that we would think of you differently, that we'd think of our lives differently in light of the revealed truth of Scripture. Lord, I pray for these people to have endurance. We have need of endurance. And so support us, strengthen us. Let us receive what you have to offer, a hope, a confidence, a comfort, help, courage to do the hard things in your name. Lord, would you be honored and glorified as we respond to you now in silence and solitude and prayer and communion and giving and worship. We love you. We thank you for this time together and pray that you would be honored and we would be blessed. And it's in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit that I pray. Amen.